Well, good morning. This morning we're going to be continuing our series looking at the life and ministry of Paul. We've been tracing his journeys and his travels throughout the, the book of Acts. And chronologically, we've been situated the past few weeks in chapter 19 and chapter 20 of Acts. But we have found ourselves looking at the letters of First and Second Corinthians because we know that during this time in Acts, Paul wrote his letters to the Corinthians. Well, additionally or similarly, we also know uh, the reason that it was likely during his time in Corinth that he wrote for three months there, that he ended up writing his letter to the Romans as well. And so we find ourselves this morning in Romans chapter 7. And before we jump into our text, I just want to clarify one thing. There's going to be a term that's going to come up. Uh, it's the term that Paul uses, and he calls it the flesh, okay? When Paul talks about the flesh, it's important to know that what he's not saying is that it, he, he's not referring to the physical body, right, when he talks about this, right? He's actually talking about what we would call like the, the residue of the old self. It's kind of, it's the old man, it's the indwelling sin that remains in us after becoming a new creation in Christ, okay? So that's what he's referring to when he says the flesh. With that in mind, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word as we take a look at Romans 7, verses 7 through 25, which is printed in your bulletins. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, at least so he thought. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it it killed me. And so the, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing." Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of the Lord, in, in my inner being, but I, I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Pray with me. Father, Lord, this morning we all um, 
uh, feel a familiarity that comes with this passage. Uh, it resonates with us in so many ways, Father. And Lord, we pray that um, you would give us a deeper understanding of what's going on here, that you would challenge our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, for me, uh, my time in seminary in St. Louis was actually a very uh, formative uh, and sentimental time. Um, it was there partly that I, it was partly sentimental because it was there I met my, my wife, Amy. Uh, and then on the other hand, it was partly sentimental because it was there that I forged a lot of bonds of friendships that have just lasted uh, a long time and that I've enjoyed during that time, there was lots of ways that I was, I was being stretched, I was being challenged, right? And uh, in a sense, I was constantly feeling this sense of struggle. Um, I was working three part-time jobs at the time while learning Greek and Hebrew. Uh, I already struggled with English as it is, so learning the two extra languages was difficult. I was wrestling with and seeking to better understand my past, and so I was seeing a counselor for the first time, and I was wrestling through, through those things as well and uh, trying to make sense of all of that. Uh, the Lord, through all of that, was confronting me with my sin. I was being challenged to, to deal with it and to, to mortify my flesh in, in a lot of ways. And, and then on top of that, I was still trying to discern God's call in my life, right? I knew that I was called to seminary. I was there. I was there to learn and grow. But I didn't know what lied ahead. I didn't know what was going on there. But what was so sweet about that time was that um, there was this comfort that I was just always aware of. There was this comfort that came from knowing that I was not alone because I was constantly being reminded of it, right? I was in, when I'm doing in Greek and Hebrew classes, right? I'm studying the flashcards, but I'm all inevitably doing that with someone else. We're all struggling through that together, right? In my counseling, I was sitting in a chair across from my counselor, and after I was sharing something I've probably never shared with anyone else before, the counselor said, I can't tell you how many people have sat in that same chair and told me the same thing. I was comforted by this, this reality, right? And then on top of that, I was in this covenant group at the time, which is just a small group of men that we shared life together, and we just shared what was going on, and we were known and loved through all of those things, and they were reaffirming the entire time. Yeah, no, you're not alone. I see you. Same. Me too. Like, I get that, right? Well, this comfort isn't exclusive to me, nor is it exclusive to my seminary experience. We all feel this, right? We know that feeling of you're not alone, right? Uh, you're not alone in this. You're normal, right? There's that feeling and thing. Well, this morning, I would suggest that this, this passage might be the biggest me too, same, I'm right there with you passage of the entire Bible, okay? And I'm going to spend the remainder of our time kind of talking about uh, three points, um, three things that we share with Paul. We share an enemy, we share a struggle, and we share a triumph, okay? First, an enemy. Paul's letters to, uh, or letter, excuse me, this is one letter, to the Romans is the longest, and it, per, it contains perhaps the, the fullest expression of the gospel that we have. And in it, he explains that God's righteousness had been revealed to, to all people, and it, it both judges, God's righteousness both judges our sin but it also saves us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whenever this idea of righteousness comes up, usually the law kind of comes close behind, right? And so uh, Paul brings up this idea of the, of the law, and he talks about its role within the believer. 
Now, you have to understand that up until this point, right, uh, Paul has spoken um, mainly or mostly in pejorative terms of the law, okay? He's, it's the law, right, that he said that reveals sin. It doesn't reveal our salvation. The law brings wrath, right, not grace. The law leads to spiritual death, not life, right? Um, and for a Jew in the Roman church, right, uh, who would have grown up memorizing and reading perhaps scriptures like Psalm 19 or Psalm 119 where they learn that, that the law of God is sweeter than honey, right? It's more precious than gold, right? This would have been conflicting in their mind. This would have seemed uh, out of, out of uh, uh, would have been flippant, and right? And they would have been taken off guard by this. Well, Paul anticipated this, okay? He anticipated their response, their gut response to this. And so he addresses it in the first verse of chapter, or verse 7, excuse me. Uh, And he answers it with a resounding no. Look at verse 7 with me. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? What's his answer? By no means, right? He goes on to say, right? The law isn't sin, nor is it sinful, right? We know that the law is actually good. Paul's going to make that abundantly clear in verse 12 when he says, so the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good, right? When we become believers or Christians, we don't become what we would say or call antinomians, right? Anti-law. We don't just discard the law, right? And get away with it. And we're just all about grace now, right? That's all we're about, right? We don't just throw it away. No, the law has a purpose, right? Jesus tells us not even an iota will be taken away from the law, right? We, it, law still stands. It just has a different purpose. What Paul is trying to communicate is that the one thing that the law does not do, it doesn't provide a way to God. It doesn't allow you to earn salvation in Christ. And that's what we've been talking about in previous weeks when we've talked about just this idea of justification uh, in, in a lot of ways. Instead, what we learn is that the law isn't the enemy. Rather, uh, it actually reveals and exposes the true enemy, which is our indwelling sin, uh, which, is he, which he talks about here. Uh, Paul is going to demonstrate this by showing how the law, how this worked out in his own life in the following verses. Look at verse 7, uh, the second part of verse 7. He says, Yet, if it, had not yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. You see, Paul, for the the law, specifically the 10th commandment, right, had exposed his heart. Like, Paul could go through all the 10 commandments, and he could say, I love God. Check, right? I don't make any idols. Check, right? I keep the Sabbath. Check. I honor my parents. Check. I don't murder, right? And so forth. And he can go through and see how he he has externally kept all of these things, and he checked the list. But when he got to the 10th commandment, he was stopped in his tracks, Why? Because he was forced to look at his heart. And when he looked at his heart, he discovered that it was a very nasty thing, right? And that's what we see. And and so sin was revealed in his own life uh, in so many ways. Paul thought that through his external law-keeping that he was actually proving himself to be righteous. But in reality, he was actually blinding himself. In fact, verse 13, or excuse me, 11 is going to go on to say that he actually was being deceived. Look at verse 11. 
For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. And therefore, Paul goes on to conclude in verse 12 that therefore the law is good. It's, it's, it's good. It, it actually reveals my sin, and that's a good thing, right? Well, in that moment, sin, on, sin for Paul went from being this abstract idea to this present, personal, terrifying reality in his life, right? And it was an inescapable reality, which is what we see in verse 13. Look with me there. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You see, once Paul became aware of his sin, he couldn't get away from it. It just, he just saw more and more how sinful he truly was and how sinful his, really, his heart really was. And what he realized is that awareness of sin is only half the battle, right? There's more to just, than just knowing about our sin. There's a struggle that's involved with our sin. And that struggle is what we see in the following verses, okay? So that brings me to my second point. So not only do we have a shared enemy with Paul, but as we see in verse 14 and following, he, we have a shared struggle as well. Uh, if there's any um, Tolkien fans in here, Lord of the Rings fans, right? There's, uh, you're familiar probably, if, if so, you're probably familiar with one of the characters, Gollum, right? Uh, well, in, in Gollum was a, uh, a hor- uh, at one point he was a normal hobbit named Smeagol, right? And then he came to possess uh, this ring um, by some wicked means, and it corrupted his heart, right? And from then on, Gollum just had this obsession, right, for his precious is what he called it, right? He had this obsession to this lust for the ring, to find the ring. But then he also had this conflict going on to him because his former self, Smeagol, like wanted to be freed from it. And so he was in this constant conflict internally about it. And we actually get a picture of this conflict uh, in this well-known scene that's not in the book. So if you're like a big fan, it's not in the book. It's just in the movie. It's an addition uh, in Gollum. And, he, and we get this dialogue in the two towers, and it goes like this. So we got Gollum over here. He says this. We want it. We need it. Must have the precious. They stole it from us. Sneaky little hobbits, wicked, tricksy, false. And we have Smeagol, no, not master. Yes, precious, false. They will cheat you, hurt you, lie. Master's my friend. You don't have any friends. No one likes you. Not listening, I'm not listening. You're a liar and a thief. No, a murderer, right? You can kind of see this conflict in his head going back and forth between the two, right? Gollum being one being and yet having two conflicting desires, right? What I want us to see from Gollum is that there's something both similar happening in this passage and something familiar that many of us see in ourselves, okay? That's what I want us to see. Uh, we see the similarity with most in, the, in the passage most clearly in verses 15 and 19, okay? Look at verse 15. For I do not understand my actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate, verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You see, there's this internal conflict, right, that Paul is wrestling with, and he keeps going back and forth, and he doesn't know what to do with it. Well, as I read, too, as we 
heard that account of Gollum, too, there's also something familiar, right? And even in those verses, we feel something familiar kind of rise up in us as well. And we're kind of like, oh, I, I kind of get that a little bit, right? We feel it in our parenting. Um, when our tempers boil over with our children, uh, and we shout at them, and we see this shocked look on their face, and we think to ourselves, where, where did that come from? <laughs> uh, what is going on? You know, what, what's, go- what's going on under the surface, right? We feel it uh, when we vow never to look at that website or that image ever again. Uh, and we have uh, made, uh, redoubled our efforts. We've made promises that we'll never look at it again. We only to end up in failure once again. Why can't I just not look at it? Why am I so weak, right? Those feelings. We feel it in our marriages <laughs> when we end up in the same argument <laughs> over and over and over again, right? Because we can't seem to change the same old patterns of anxiety and anger and forgetfulness and just sin in our own lives that we just feel stuck. We're like, why am I this way, right? We feel this, this thing that Paul is talking about. Well, despite this familiarity that we feel, um, this particular section has actually gotten a lot of uh, attention because um, it, there's a lot of debate over it uh, over the years, right? And the debate has been, uh, involves many wonderful and godly and brilliant people. Uh, and the debate uh, has generally revolved around one question, okay? And the question is this. Was Paul describing himself as a Christian or a non-believer, right? Was this... Was this old Paul talking, or was this new Paul talking, right? So that's kind of the big question, you know. Um, Some have wondered if the Christian, right, once he has died to sin and has become this new creation, you know, if if we can experience anything like this, this kind of feeling of just struggle and inability to kind of do what we, to follow Christ and, and to do that. And there are some, right, that hold this idea that there comes a point in the Christian life where we kind of arrive, if you will. We kind of plateau. We just kind of make it. And in the Christian life, we, we, we don't really struggle with sin that much anymore, right? We've kind of just, we made it to a point where like sin's a thing of the past. That's something I used to do, right? It's this idea, right? But is that true, right? Um, I would bet, like many of you, if you were to, I, I would say, I don't, I don't think I, I know I'm, I wouldn't be a Christian if that was the case. And in fact, I've never met a Christian, uh, if that's the case, right? And so I would argue and put forward to you this, this morning that verses 14 through 25 is actually a description not only of Paul's Christian life, but I would say the normal Christian life. Remember, Paul was, uh, he was mature at this point, right? He was on his third missionary journey when he wrote this. And, 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 and yet he's saying all of these things. And I'm going to give you a few reasons why I and certain scholars are convinced that this is the case, okay? The first reason is this. If you look at the verses, right, in the, in the Greek, what you're going to notice is that verses 1 through 13 are all in the past tense, okay? Then there's a shift that takes place in verse 14, In verse 14, the shift turns from past tense to present tense. So Paul, if we're taking this woodenly, is speaking of himself presently, 
on his third missionary journey as an older, mature Christian, right? He's speaking about this, right? And he's, so that's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing I want you to see is how Paul views himself and how he views the law, okay? How he views himself. We're just going to kind of work through the verses here together, okay? So verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, right? Paul is acknowledging that the law is of the spirit, right? It's spiritual, right? This is a good thing. The law is good. He said, he's saying what he said in verse 12. And he's also not acknowledging that he is of the flesh, right? There is, there's, a, there's something in him, right, that is these, uh, this residue of his former self that is in him, right? Verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Okay, what's he saying? Well, there's something that, uh, that he wants to do, right? He wants to obey the law. And there's something that he hates that he does. Namely, sin. Disobey the law, right? He doesn't like that he does that. He wants to change that about himself. Verse 16 and 17. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Okay, well, we can read this in one or two ways, right? Well, one is Paul kind of abdicating responsibility. He's like, well, that's, that's you know, Paul, 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 old Paul, right? Like, that's just, that's him. Whenever he does anything bad, that's not really me, right? Is he just kind of abdicating uh, responsibility? Or is Paul here just referring to these this idea of his two selves, right? His old self and his new self, right? Uh, there's this old self, the flesh, what I, I mentioned earlier, which is this residue of sin, this indwelling sin that remains in him after Christ, after faith in Christ, uh, that is at work in him. But notice he says this is not truly who he is, right? It, it's almost if you re-look at the verse, it looks like he's talking about sin as this kind of like foreigner, like this thing that doesn't belong in him, right? Look at the verse. It says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, right? There's this thing that's in me that's foreigner that doesn't belong, right? Uh, this old self isn't something I just made up. Paul actually talks about this in chapter 6, verse 6, right? He mentions the old self. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him, with Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Okay, this is where the other side of the debate is going to chime in, okay? If we have died to sin, right, if it is true that we are this new creation, uh, why does it sound like Paul is enslaved here, right? Why does it sound like he's in chains and he's unable to change who he is, right? That's where they go with that. But I would raise, like, is this really what's going on here? Is this really what's being depicted? Paul isn't uh, saying that he is completely powerless. He can't change. He, there's no possible no possibility of victory. There's nothing good in him at all. He doesn't, right? Like he's not, that's not what he's saying, right? Um, what he is depicting here, I would say, is just a struggle. And it's a struggle that we all experience in one way or another. See, the very fact that Paul desires to do right, did you hear that? That he desires to do it, the fact that he sees himself as a sinner, right? He has this contrite heart that David spoke about earlier. The fact that he has that is actually, I think, great evidence that he is a new man, that he is in Christ, that he has been transformed, right? 
Okay, verse 18 through 20, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but in that, we're going to see more of the same thing. Finally, I want, to, I want you to notice one more thing. Notice how Paul talks about the law, okay, in the following verses. I'm going to read verses 21 through 23. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, right, in, in who I truly am, in my heart of hearts, I delight in God's law. But I see the, my members, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You see, did you hear that? In his heart of hearts, Paul delights in the law of God. Why is this significant? Well, because in a few verses, Paul is actually going to tell us in Romans 8, 7, that it is impossible for a non-Christian to delight in God's law. It's impossible, right? And so the very fact that Paul delights in the law of God, that he has any want to resist uh, sin, is evidence that Paul is writing as this new man, as a believer. You see, the struggle you and I experience as believers is normal. In fact, I would argue it's good. It's good because it's an indicator that the Holy Spirit is at work in you and I. It's working. It's transforming us, right? It's giving us an awakening uh, in so many ways. So there's this great little book out there by Chris Lungard called The Enemy Within. He talks about sin, and he gives this great little analogy in there about um, the law of sin, and he compares it to this raging river, okay? Uh, and he talks about how believers and unbelievers kind of are aware of this river. So he says this, Believers are the only people who ever find the law of sin at work in them. Unbelievers can't feel it, right? Believers are aware of the law. Unbelievers are just numb to it, right? And he goes on to say this. The law of sin is a raging river carrying them along. They cannot measure the force of the current, speaking of unbelievers, because they have surrendered themselves to it and are borne along by it. A believer, on the other hand, swims upstream. He meets sin head on and he strains under, his, under its strength. You see, one is this clueless, numb person just drifting down the river. The other person, the Christian, is one who's struggling. He realizes that there's a current in the river and that this current's actually pushing him further and further down the river. And so he starts straining against it. He starts resisting it, right? This is a picture of the believer. This has direct application for us, okay? Uh, and, and, and it begs some questions that we need to ask of ourselves and so I pose these to you. Are you actively struggling against your sin? Are you resisting sin in your life? Is the anger, the pride, the lust, and selfishness that you feel, are you putting that to death actively in your life? If not, I would propose to you, perhaps you're, you're just drifting along under the river and just drifting through, and you need to start swimming upstream again. You need to start to resisting. If you are resisting, if you feel the struggle, right, if you resonate deeply with what Paul is saying in this passage, be encouraged because it's evidence that the Holy Spirit's at work in you. Uh, now, those on the other side of the debate are uh, quick to point out in this text, just text the lack of triumph in, this, in the passage, right? In fact, they actually point out that the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned except for one little time when it talks about the law being spiritual in verse 14. 
And so they, they use that as evidence that, uh, see, this is, not, this, is not, this is not a new Paul. There's no even Holy Spirit. But I would propose that just because the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit isn't at work, right? How else can you explain Paul's desire to resist sin? How else can you explain his delight for the law of God, but except for the Holy Spirit being at work in his life. Now, secondly, in regards to the lack of triumph, we mustn't miss the high note of this passage, okay? There's a high note that comes up. Not only do we have a shared enemy, not only do we have a shared struggle, but as we see with Paul, we have a shared triumph. Look with me at verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? From this body of death, we were to stop there. Maybe we would conclude that Paul is not a believer in this passage, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? The high note, the reason why it's possible for Paul, for you, for I to resist our sin and to delight in God's law is because Jesus took on flesh, he took on our old selves. He took on all of our sin, all of our failures. And though sinless himself, he took it to the cross and he crucified it with it. Right? And so he, and thus killing the power and mastery that sin has over you and I, okay? And then not only did he do that, but he gave us a new self. A self that sees sin for what it is, that's not oblivious to it, not numb to sin, that delights in God's law, a self that longs to please God and to be obedient to his word. You see, like Paul, this new self is his truest identity. The old self is a foreigner. It doesn't belong in him, right? There's this uh, great little movie that came out back in 2006 called uh, Blood Diamond. Uh, and in it, it's a movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, and, um, and it's about this, it takes place in, in uh, Sierra Leone, where there's this ruthless civil war taking place in which uh, different parties are trying to acquire these diamonds, and in the process, process they're wreaking just dis destruction on everyone in their, in their way, right? Uh, and there's this uh, it's part, this character in it, one of the main characters, and who's a father, and there's this relationship that they kind of end up focusing on that is so sweet. It, it's between the father and the son. Uh, the father, Solomon, right, because of uh, uh, the civil war that was taking place, was kind of taken hostage and uh, uh, ended up, was brought back, and he was enslaved for a little bit of time, but he eventually escapes, and when he makes his way back home to his tribe, to his people, to his family, he discovers that his son, Dia, has been taken, brainwashed, and turned into a child soldier, okay? And he's heartbroken, right? And so it begins this journey of him trying to find his son, right, and get his son back. Well, they're eventually reunited, but it, they're reunited in this very tense way, right? They, they come together, and uh, he finds Dia, but Dia, who's still brainwashed, is pointing a gun at his father, uh, and, and Solomon, the father, uh, confronts him. And these are the words he says. He says this, Dia, what are you doing? Dia, look at me. Look at me. What are you doing? He starts walking towards his son very carefully. You are Dia Vandy of the Mandy tribe. You are a good boy. You love soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. 
She waits by the fire, making plantains and red stew. And there's a new baby. And the cow. And, and your dog that only minds you. I know they made you do bad things. You're not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you. And you will come home with me. And you will be my son again. Uh, Dia, you know, in the process, lowers his gun. That tears start streaming down their face as they as they embrace. Um, but I bring up this account to you because, like Dia, uh, we have all done bad things in our lives. We've all sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. And we stand thusly, rightly accused for our sin. And we're accused by not only our own conscience, but we're also accused by Satan. And the problem with these accusations is this, that neither Satan nor our own conscience has the final word. God, our Father, has the final word. And this is what he tells us in Romans 8.1. He says, There is therefore now no, not a zip, no condemnation, for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, if you are in Christ this morning, your truest identity isn't found in who Satan or who, you sel- who yourself tells you that you are, but in who God, your Father, says that you are through Christ. In fact, if you are a struggler this morning with Paul, with me, it's evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in you and that you are, in fact, a believer right? In this lifetime, we never arrive. We never stop struggling with sin, right? Doesn't mean we don't experience victory. We still experience victory in certain ways, right? And there's things that, that God works in us and does through his power, right? And that's amazing. We don't lose account of that, right? But the Christian never experiences ultimate victory until Christ returns, and makes all things right. So if your faith is in Christ, and you are a struggler like Paul, like me, then you can be certain that the Holy Spirit who is at work in you now will finish what he started. That is our hope as believers. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we, we hear this good news, and uh, our conscience already is telling us, no, this is not true. <laughs> it can't be true of you. It can't be true of you. Father, if we're in Christ, then these are the truest words uh, that we could ever hear, that you are our Father and you love us because of what you accomplished through Christ, not because of our track record, not because of our, our history of sin, not because of what we, we did yesterday or what we're doing now or what we will do tomorrow, but because of the finished work of Christ. May we rest in that this morning. We pray in the precious and mighty name of Christ. Amen.